Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined remotely today uh, by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, how's it going in the village? It's going well, Ben. Uh, it's Adha times, but it doesn't really feel like, uh, you know, a holiday. There's no really such a holiday spirit, but it's all right. Better <laughs> humidity and temperature than Beirut, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, obviously, we're going to be talking quite a bit about the heat and Adha and uh, several things uh, today. I do I do want to mention right at the top of the show, uh, do a little biz- a bit of business. Nizar, myself, and our producer, Susan Wilson, all recently appeared on another podcast, uh, Rani Shatas, uh, the Beirut Banyan. And we were we were super excited, first off. Rani is a great guy. We had a great discussion with him, came out of it. It was great. And then we recorded last week's podcast afterwards for, for us, and we totally forgot to mention anything about it. Um, so sorry, Rani. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you're for for our listeners, uh, if you're if you're interested, check his podcast out. You can listen to us. Uh, he's he's this workhorse. He's done I don't know 180 something episodes, or I I forget which number he's on. He he just puts out these episodes, a whole bunch of them, all about Lebanon, talking to very different people. Check it out, the Beirut Banyan. Um, and, and with that promotion for Ronnie and self-promotion for us out of the way, let's, let's actually get to the news. Let's do it. Okay. So first off, we're on lockdown again. Coronavirus is back in a big way. We saw this past week, the largest increase yet again. And so this is the fourth week that we've set a record in weekly increases. And that just keeps on growing and growing in really kind of large ways. So we went from like, 300 cases four weeks ago to 600 to 800. And then this past week, we had 1,148 cases identified Saturday to Saturday. And the day before on Friday, that was the first and only thus far day with over 200 new cases. And so we we definitely are in the upswing here. Uh, we, we're definitely seeing a, a huge wave in Corona. And, and now we have an active case count of 2,733. As of Saturday, we're recording this Sunday before the numbers come out. And, and that's that 2,700, that's a whole lot bigger than the previous status quo, which was around 500. Think about you know when we were under lockdown before and when we opened up and when the airport was opening up, all of that stuff, that base level 500 active cases has, has more than quintupled now. But just something to note from last week, Giorgio Ace, the uh, Lebanese forces MP from Zahle, actually turns out he didn't have coronavirus. Uh, so that's good news for him and his family. Uh, he tested positive, but then he took another PCR test and that tested negative. This week we had, uh, unfortunately, 14 people die. Uh, so the total death toll for Lebanon has uh, shot up to 61 overall. The Lebanese authorities are tackling this. Uh, they they have put us back on at least a partial lockdown. Of course, there is a lot of questions about, well, are we go- doing enough? You probably need to do a full lockdown. Uh, but as of right now, there's sort of a lockdown going on Thursday to Monday, and then a couple days not on lockdown, and then another Thursday to Monday. That's what they're doing for now. There's no curfew or license plate driving restrictions but but this is this is sort of like the the initial attempt to try to get this under control. 
But right now, everybody's talking about hospital capacity. Right now, we have 143 cases in the hospital and 32 in ICUs, the intensive care units. The ICU capacity here is critical. Now, you would think 32, that's not a huge number. But the problem is we might quickly, as we mentioned, grow to exceed that capacity. Uh, we have about 260 beds, according to Faras Abiyad, who is the director of the Rafi Kariri University Hospital, the sort of the main public hospital that's taking on the coronavirus epidemic. And the worry is that the hospital capacity could be exceeded in a very short amount of time, perhaps as little as two weeks. Along with this, I think that there's a debate about public and private hospitals and the capacities and who's doing what. Abiyad said that our true ICU bed capacity depends on a question. Why aren't more patients being admitted to the private hospitals? And it seemed to suggest that perhaps the private hospitals are not carrying their weight in all of this. And then uh, Abiyad also called out private hospitals recently for not being prepared for outbreaks among their dialysis patients, saying that dialysis patients had been referred to his hospital from other hospitals. In Lebanon, you know, most of the hospital capacity is in the private sector, which is sort of semi-private, right? Because they do receive public funds and the state is late in paying those. And so all these private hospitals are in a bad situation financially. The situation probably isn't too much better in public hospitals uh, that have had a lot of issues with finances uh, and paying employees uh, in recent years. Yeah, and this is this whole issue with, um, I mean, there are private hospitals, but they rely so much on people who come with, with the National Social Security Fund coverage or um, uh, on the expense of the Ministry of Health, etc. And the, the NSSF, the Social Security Fund, hasn't been paying the money that, that, that it owes to the hospitals because it hasn't been paid the money it is owed from the state. So there's like a cycle of late payments that has caused a lot of problems in recent years. And the issue is that when you're a private entity, you can just sometimes say, okay, I'm not gonna take this anymore. Uh, you either pay me or I stop working. And they have tried to do that on many occasions, but not in a very serious way. But I don't know why, uh, like we should dig more into like the, the issue that Abiyad is raising concerning the share of private hospitals uh, when it comes to coronavirus. Right, because right now it seems as though public hospitals, which are in probably even a weaker position in many ways than private hospitals, are carrying the bulk of the load for uh, the COVID-19 outbreak. When, on the other hand, you have some extremely wealthy institutions in you know private hospitals that definitely could be doing a whole lot more than what they are doing right now, and they don't seem to be. That seems to be the implication from this. Um, obviously, hospitals, whether they, whether they are public or private, have to deal with the economic issues in the country. We already mentioned the, uh, the fiscal ones, but also the monetary ones. You know, Basically, everything is imported uh, in the health sector, and so the lack of access to foreign exchange makes that very, very difficult to get supplies and everything. And we've heard, you know, for instance, PPE is quite low. And then the other thing that has really come to the fore in the in the past few weeks is electricity. And there was an excellent piece uh, in The Telegraph by Abby Cheeseman this week. She went down to Rafi Hariri University Hospital and talked to people there. And it turns out that 
two of their six generators are out of order, according to their head of maintenance, quoted in this article. Um, they are relying on donations of 30,000 liters of fuel to keep the hospital running because the state electricity isn't there as much as it used to be. It's struggling to buy spare parts, of course. Probably these parts have to be imported. And they've already had to cut the air conditioning to parts of the hospital due to the fuel shortages. So a lot, I mean, Rafi Kariri University Hospital is clearly bearing the brunt of this, and it is very much under strain right now. Their ICU is almost full for COVID. So right now we seem to just be, you know, on the precipice. Because if we, if the number of cases exceeds our hospital capacity, then we're going to start seeing the mortality rate rise significantly. And speaking of electricity more in general, it, it seems to me, Nizar, I don't know if this has been your experience, but we, we definitely had more electricity in my part of town during Adha, during the, the holiday. Yeah, we've definitely seen an improvement over the last, over the last few days, for sure, uh, in Beirut and in other areas. It's not the normal. It's not three hours cut in Beirut, 10 or 12 hours in other areas. It's more than usual. It's more cuts than usual. And uh, there are some weird things happening. Like, you know, a couple of minutes ago, my 4G just was deactivated at the same time that the uh, electricity went uh, went off. So it might be related to the station not being powered by an immediate generator here in Shouf. I have no idea. Anyway, it's, it's back to uh, something closer to normal, but it's not resolved yet for sure. Yeah, and I, I think that case of the internet going out is going to start happening more frequently. I've experienced that before, both like Wi-Fi and your mobile data connection, both cutting simultaneously, usually just for a few minutes. And uh, just this past week, w we saw you know internet go down in downtown of all places because Ogero couldn't keep their generators running, reportedly. So this is this is one of those things. The electricity feeds into the internet, and it seems as though just all of the infrastructure is crumbling uh, because they can't fix this electricity situation. The, the question that I have on this is that why don't we have more information? We don't have any information from EDL or the energy ministry about fuel shipments that are coming in, the electricity hours that we're going to get. I, I have no idea. For instance, the state electricity just went off for me, and I have no idea when it's going to come back. And nobody ever has any idea when it's going to come unless you're on that regular only three hours of darkness per day schedule that they used to have before the current shortages. And so if if we had, you know, reformers or if we had, you know, people who were running things well, I think, at EDL or at the Ministry of Energy, at very least, they would be trying to get us some basic information so that People can plan their lives, they can plan their days, they can plan their energy consumption. They know what's actually going on. Of course, the, this lack of transparency cuts across multiple swaths of the bureaucracy because at the same time, I'm still not entirely sure how much money BDL has, you know, how many dollars BDL has to spend on this stuff. So we have just a total lack of transparency from the financial authorities and from the electricity and fuel authorities. And we're left with, with just their statements, you know, of them saying, oh, things are going to get better. Or, oh, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying, but we have nothing that we can actually hold them to account over. And this is like one of the problems, <laughs> whatever we, whatever kind of sector we're covering, 
this is, you see the problem with like lack of information that might be related to corruption and things like that and then you also feel that you know there's a problem of of competence right like it's it's not only a problem of corruption and transparency I mean, this this elite that we have doesn't know how to manage the sectors, doesn't know how to manage crisis in a way that sometimes just is, becomes absolutely ridiculous, you know? Uh, why did we have these incredible cuts over the last few weeks? Why is the situation actually improving now? We don't know anything. They're bad managers. They're not only unfair in their policy, they're really bad at managing the country. Right. If, if the FPM and if uh, Raymond Rajar were really serious about reforming the sector, they would be a lot more transparent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And also this week, we had uh, news on another utility front, the Bisri Dam project, which is supposed to uh, supply water to a lot of people in Beirut and in the southern suburbs of Beirut. Hezbollah and Amal came out in full support of the project. This is a very controversial project that recently has seen uh, a big question mark form over it. Uh, civil society has been against it for years. I, th- I think we've talked about it several times on this program, but recently Wale Jumblat of the Progressive Socialist Party came out against it. He had previously been in favor of it. Yeah, so the Wale Jumblat matters because the project is basically right next to the heartland of Jumblat family, Mahtara. It's in the heart of Shouf, etc. So what Jumblat says or thinks about it is very relevant to what actually happens, uh, even in terms of jurisdiction and the municipalities around it and all of that. Jumblat basically is the key opinion maker when it comes to projects in, in this area. But what happened is that civil society has been successful in mobilizing a lot of people and public opinion against the dam, the dam project. I like when I say dam project, it sounds like dam project. <laughs> <laughs> when you're angry, you know, we're against this damn yeah. project. Anyway, uh, so Jumblat switched sides recently. He was with the project, and then after they bought all the land and they were they're about to start actually constructing and laying the foundations for that, he switched sides and now he's against the dam. And Hezbollah and Emel coming out for the Bisri Dam project and uh, basically criticizing Jumblat for changing his opinion. The problem with that is that, first of all, obviously, they're not taking into account all of the talking points and the facts and the studies that civil society is is putting forward when it comes to why they're opposing the project. But also, they're turning this into some kind of political bickering between themselves and Jumblat, which is very bad to the cause itself, right? Because it sidelines the original voices that are opposing the project for for the real reasons, not for any political reasons, and the rhetoric that Ali Ammar presented in this in this um, in this press statement or in this press conference was quite also insightful. Quite, you know, uh, um, has a sectarian nature because he talks about how our people will not be go, will not go thirsty, and we reject the water siege on our people. And they're using the same rhetoric that Hezbollah is using to describe the U.S., Israeli, etc., campaign against Hezbollah. So the global kind of crackdown on Hezbollah, they're calling it a siege or hisar. They use the same word to describe Jumblat switching, changing his opinion on Bisri and uh, the, the, the obstruction of the Bisri Dam project construction. So it's quite, I was very like provoked by this uh, political rhetoric that Hezbollah opted for in this, uh, that I mean the two blocks opted for in this, uh, in this uh, stance they are taking. But most importantly to me, 
we shouldn't uh, allow this issue to become something between the factions of the ruling class because if that's the case, then they will reach a deal and things will move on and nothing of all the concerns that we have about this project will actually be taken into account eventually. You see what I mean? This is like the biggest issue. Right, right. And, and, and of course, this comes on the heels of the World Bank granting, what was it, a three-month extension to get uh, works back up and running at the site. Um, and so this is, this is a big sort of political question. It's sort of like, if the dam is going get, to get built, it's going to get built now or never. Yeah, exactly. So it's now all about, like, the reality is all about what happens on the ground, how the government is able to uh, ensure that, to bring back basically Jumblat to its side and ensure that any opposition to, uh, to like, any physical opposition by protesters, because there are protesters camping there and preventing things from happening. This, you know, this is an actual mobilization happening on the ground. And uh, the key thing is for the government to kind of co-opt some of these people or to uh, to end this opposition, uh, to, especially its physical manifestations. So I think the biggest uh, line of communication that will be active on that uh, in that sense now will be the you know the line between Hassan Diab and Wali Jumblat. Let's see if it uh, if it reaches anywhere. Um, I just want to mention uh, very quickly a note here. The Special Tribunal for Lebanon announced that it will be holding a judgment session this Friday. So basically, the verdict, what everybody has been waiting for in the case of the assassination of Rafi Hariri uh, from 2005, I mean, this has been a, a many, many, many years long process to come to this. And on Friday at noon, Beirut time, they are going to, it, it looks like they're going to actually release the verdict and, and give the judgments. I, I don't want to speculate on what the verdict uh, or verdicts might be, but but certainly this is probably more of a political issue right now than than just a legal one because i mean even if the defendants are all you know convicted and all of that stuff uh, because they were tried in absentia under lebanese law if they were to come forward in the future it's my understanding that they'd be able to get another trial and so i i think what's really more important here is just the politics how this is handled by the future movement by the west and of course by hezbollah which is sort of de facto on trial in, in this case. And what matters to people here is that uh, will this have any manifestations in terms of things, have repercussions on the ground, in the streets, etc. And it doesn't seem so. Both Hariri and people in his block and, and Hezbollah don't seem to be uh, excited to, you know, fire things up because of this verdict. So it's in my opinion there might be you know some media stuff some strong statements etc maybe one or two roads blocked maximum but this doesn't look like it's going to be the the beginning of like a new episode of street confrontations or whatever because some people are seriously worried about that you know uh, because this is one of the most polarizing issues and it's it's around you know a very sensitive topic which is the killing of hariri and uh, for a lot of people if they believe the verdict of or if they believe what has been presented so far in the court then hezbollah members stand like are responsible for this assassination which is yeah, you know, one of the things that can be most polarizing ever, you know, the killing of a major political figure. But it doesn't seem like things will escalate much, which is which is uh, good. And to me, like, and to most people here, especially people who want to who would want to travel, for example, or come to Lebanon, etc. This is the key issue here. But other than that, I don't think that this is gonna give, be given the same importance that it was given in the past. This whole STL thing. 
assassinations at some point they kind of dissolve in history and they are just you know written uh, and and documented and told talked about in the future but you don't always actually get the punishment or justice for everything that happens so i think this is turning into one of these cases of uh, <laughs> forgotten historical uh, injustices Right. And and certainly people are a lot more concerned right now with just, you know, putting food on the table, making sure that their kids are doing okay, have an education, have opportunities. I think the national focus has definitely shifted, you know, over the past couple of years, for sure. Nizar, I, I wanted to wish you something. Yesterday, Saturday was Happy Army Day. 75 years of the Lebanese Army. So it was nice meeting you, man. <laughs> I mean, I've never been uh, congratulated for this day before, and uh, I thank you for your initiative. It was a, it was a bad joke to be honest this time because, like, um, the army is not, it doesn't fail to surprise us recently with its stunts. It's going more on the aggressive side. It's, it's becoming, you know, it's claiming this whole uh, sacred army thing and trying to push many PR stunts that don't always work. So was this what they did this time is that you know. They had, they had a concert, a, mu- a musical concert with a lot of big names, mostly male singers that are very famous in Lebanon, singing stuff about Lebanon and the army and etc. But also they had one song that was being performed by a choir of a lot of people, and and this and this song it's a, it's a Majida Rumi song, one of the iconic singers in, in, in Lebanon, and the song is very old, very well known. It says. Uh, it's about Beirut and how Beirut is rising, etc. And it says uh, the revolution is born from the womb of sadness. Okay, And um, <laughs> for some weird reason, and in a very hilarious way, what happened is that they covered basically this these lines. So the moment that they are singing these lyrics, there's a weird la 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 covering the actual lyrics of the song <laughs> yeah i've never seen something so absolutely ridiculous and it was like it's it's very petty right like are you trying to basically omit the words that are related to thawra and suffering while people are literally suffering like uh, they haven't for a long time it's, it's very disrespectful but also quite anti-revolutionary and just not justifiable at, by any standard right well, I, I mean, and also to do this in uh, what is a, a pretty popular song, right? Like most people knew the words. And so they knew when they were singing la, 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 what they were covering up, right? And this is the punchline, right? This is the punchline. <laughs> this is like the la- the sentence that kind of moves people and is emotional, et cetera. Anyway, it's, it was a really big, really bad joke. Like I, I don't, I don't know who made this decision. Uh, but I don't know how, like, the company managing the event, ICE Corporation or whatever, or the army or the musician. Uh, it's a very famous musician who was leading the, the choir, etc. Like, who accepted, who gave the green light to this, like, ridiculous choice? Anyway, um, yeah. this, uh, the, the pro-Thawra people responded by making the, the omitted sentence the number one trend on Lebanese Twitter. I think it still is since uh, yesterday night. We're recording this on Sunday, obviously. And the problem, I think, with all of that is that the army is kind of, I think, sometimes going out of its, out of its way to harm its own, like, reputation, you know. The last thing, if you remember, the last PR issue with the army was when the army was uh, suppressing protests in Tripoli and reportedly through the rubber bullets they killed 
Fawaz Saman, uh, one of the protesters, is also a friend of uh, uh, the brother of, uh, of my comrade uh, Fatima. And uh, w- when this happened, right, the army responded because there was a lot of attacks and critis- criticisms against the army on social media, etc. The army responded by publishing this video of soldiers distributing food packages to poor families, which is a government program, and and the army was the, the basically the manpower implementing it and with a state with a statement basically saying is this how you pay back the favor or something like that it was a really big pr tragedy and they removed the video quite um, uh, soon after that in the same day but also there's another controversial thing that happened on friday which is a clash between army troops and people in in the north uh, the army was trying to intercept a truck of smuggled livestock uh, sheep or whatever and the locals were angry, they blocked the roads for the army uh, uh, to disperse them, shot rubber bullets at the protesters, and one of the protesters uh, was moved to hospital and he died in hospital. This is according to the army statement. So this is the second time that happened, and this time it's Lu'ai Satim who, who died. So what is the army really learning from these, uh, from these experiences? And it's really, is it doing anything apart from the PR stuff? Yeah, I think that the the details on this are a little bit unclear. Uh, we don't know exactly how it was that uh, Mr. Sotham was was killed, but we do know that you know something went terribly wrong when it, when it appears like locals were just trying to get some sheep for Adha, their holiday celebrations, and certainly you know that this is just another case where the army has used force and something really terrible has happened and the army has failed to provide us with enough details for us to really know what happened and that's pretty much it for the news other than the really big news item that happened this week and and that's of course what happened down on the southern border on monday now prior to this israel had uh struck hezbollah in, in a raid near a Damascus airport and had killed one of their members, uh, Ali Kamal Mohsen. And, and of course, we know whenever this happens, Hezbollah has committed to responding, right? So everyone was expecting some sort of a response. And we don't know if we got it or not, but it seems like there's still more to come, right? There, I, I think, Nizar, you, you did a pretty good job of breaking this down into what we know happened and <laughs> what what we don't know. Yeah, so as you said, the most important background is Israel's basically attack um, uh, south of uh, Damascus that killed uh, Ali Kamil Mahsin. And there is no question about whether Hezbollah will respond or that or not, because Nasrallah made it clear last year, as you're saying, Nasrallah made it clear we will respond to any attack from Lebanon uh, specifically. Anyway, on Saturday, the Lebanese army announced that uh, there were a lot of Israeli jets basically over the country, 29 violations of Lebanese airspace by Israeli jets in the past 48 hours. And people were just feeling it, apart from the army statements, people were hearing the jets on lower altitude than usual. So... Uh, it was quite clear that Israel was looking, was surveilling, was trying to find out what Hezbollah was about to do. And on Sunday, one of Israel's Israel's drones actually crashed in South Lebanon. Also, like uh, many other drones were reported to be active in the same day. So we're talking about a lot of Israeli activity trying to basically prevent 
what could be a Hezbollah response. And the drone was not, apparently was not brought down by Hezbollah or anyone else. It, uh, it probably fell for a, for a technical failure, according to some reports I've seen. But there's no confirmation of any, like, confrontation that led to uh, this drone crashing. It's just a detail, basically. But the main thing happened on Monday, and, and what definitely happened is that Israeli media started reporting that Hezbollah targeted an Israeli tank uh, with a Cornet mi- missile, okay? And uh, this news item was reported in English, in Arabic, etc. It went around. At the same time, the Israeli army went on a, on a, a mode of alert. Uh, it, first of all, it, uh, they told you know people in uh, in nearby Israeli uh, settlements to you know to or villages to uh, to stay at home, and then they started shelling um, uh, areas of South Lebanon across the border. And this is what we know. This is what definitely happened. We don't know uh, more details than this for sure. But one and, of and just the, to, one of, just to, just to make sure. Sorry to interrupt you, but just to clarify, we don't know that Hezbollah actually shot that coordinate missile, but we do know that it was reported. That this is the story that got out afterwards. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So yeah. it was. I'm just telling what is what the Israeli media reported in terms of the missile. It's not confirmed at all, and I will talk about that in a second. But anyway, the shelling damaged also one civilian house, and the and the Lebanese family was in the house. Thank God they were uh, they they're okay. But this was it. There was no like uh, large scale damage from the shelling. Anyway, this is basically what we know. But then, um, what might have happened is a totally different story, right? The Israeli government says that. First of all, they claim that this missile was launched, and they say that they foiled an attack by Hezbollah on uh, Israeli troops uh, across the borders. But this claim is not substantiated by any, like, it's not supported by any evidence, right? It's not, uh, there's no footage, there's no drone footage, so there's no reason for someone to believe the story just because they said it. But the Israeli story, just to be clear, is that three or four Hezbollah troops uh, across the borders, infiltrated, were trying to attack uh, uh, Israeli uh, troops and uh, then uh, the IDF forces saw them and they attacked them, etc. This is the story. And then Hezbollah said there was no operation by its members there. There was no, not even one shot fired by Hezbollah people. The, all the fire, they said, was from the Israeli side because of Israel's panic about Hezbollah's retaliation. This made them very anxious and very, you know, troubled and they, they basically created this whole fake story or fake incident. This is Hezbollah's position. And uh, Hezbollah, as we said before, made it clear that something, that a response is actually coming, but this was not it. And one scenario that was was, uh, basically hinted at by Wiam Wahab, the Druze politician who was close to Hezbollah and specifically to Wafiq Safa and Hezbollah, uh, a high-level official, um, Wahab said on TV that what might have happened is that Hezbollah sent, you know, a bunch of people to to do some surveillance to to understand what was happening, their uh, reconnaissance mission, whatever. Uh, but it was not a, a military operation. It was not like an attack. And this story might make sense. In my opinion, it's the most believable story that you know Hezbollah sent some soldiers. Uh, they were tracked by. They were you know detected by Israeli forces. They shelled the areas. They tried to to kill them, etc. This might be the story. To say that there was no Hezbollah involvement at all and the Israelis just com- completely panicked and they started shelling for no absolutely no reason, 
I think is quite uh, naive to believe. I mean, I wouldn't believe that storyline. At the same time, uh, Israel, I think, just created a whole fake thing that happened with the missile and everything because if there was a missile and all of these Israeli jets and drones in the air, we probably can't see some footage of that. And even inside Israel, by Israeli media, there's a lot of skepticism around whether this actually happened, whether you know the government is, is, is telling the truth or not. Uh, because relatively recently, last year in September, the, the government was not very uh, transparent about the, the clash that happened between the IDF and, and Hezbollah uh, also in the same area around Shabaa farms. Back then, if you remember, Hezbollah fired missiles targeting Israeli vehicles in response to something else, obviously. Uh, and uh, what happened is that there was a helicopter that looked like it was transporting bodies. So Hezbollah claimed immediately after they, they saw this, the Hezbollah claimed in a statement that it killed and injured uh, many soldiers from the Israeli side. And then Netanyahu came out and said, no, there was no, no injury, not even a scratch on any soldier, etc. And then media reports the next day, uh, Israeli media and global media was reporting that it was actually a ruse. It was a, a, a theatrical thing. It was not real. Um, and what happened was the blood was fake. And that, this is what media reported, right? That this was not did not really happen. There was no evacuation of wounded soldiers. And, uh, has, and that uh, the Israeli government or the defense forces did this in order to trick Hezbollah into thinking that the mission succeeded and they killed or wounded soldiers. And, you know, uh, all of the details about how the Israeli uh, um, defense establishment kind of shut down any media reporting of the truth for during the day to make sure that Hezbollah doesn't in- escalate its response. A lot of details. It's, I think it's an interesting story. But the point is that there is not a lot of confidence in uh, what the government says and what the military says including by Israeli media now when it comes to border clashes with Hezbollah, because there's probably a lot of uh, agenda involved more than uh, than just truth-telling. Right. If you, if you claim that a missile was fired at you, but you don't have any footage or, or evidence, um, or at least none that I've seen, then, then that raises some questions, right? Yeah, exactly. But the point here, I think, is that uh, we're in a new phase of, of confrontation between Hezbollah and Israel, which is basically... Uh, tit for that thing, uh, you know, you target someone in Syria, we respond from Lebanon, and this seems to have been established now and probably accepted by both uh, sides. At the same time, it doesn't look like any of the two sides is looking for a real escalation or a real war for, uh, I think, very different reasons, but neither Hezbollah nor Israel seems so excited about that. Right. So, so I mean, it, it sets up the situation where now I, th- I think most observers still expect Hezbollah to respond or have another response, d- depending on what actually happened on Monday. And the question then becomes, if they do that, well, how do they keep this, you know, on both sides, how do you keep this from sort of spiraling out of control? Things can go wrong when whenever you have some something like this, something kinetic like this. Uh, so how do you tamp things down, make sure nothing spirals out of control so that you don't actually have a war on your hands. Yeah, exactly. But to me, as someone who is not very knowledgeable about military affairs, to be very clear, to me, it seems like Hezbollah is not in the best position here because the Israelis are panicking, right? It's very clear that they are, you know, on the watch for anything and they just have to. And Hezbollah's strategy here is that, you know, you have to wait and see. What we, how we will respond. This is what they did now when they released a statement saying 
the response is definitely coming. This is literally what they said. So it's basically wait and you will see. It's basically keeping the 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 keeping the Israelis on their toes and uh, in this uh, full anxiety mode. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like what Israel has been doing is actually successfully targeting, assassinating people from Hezbollah in Syria, while Hezbollah's response is limited in the damage that it afflicts on, on the Israelis, right? Because if they kill one of your leaders, which is what happened before, they killed for example, major figures from Hezbollah um, or military officers, etc., in Syria, and you respond by targeting a vehicle and no one is injured or killed, etc. Like, it's it's not the same kind of damage. It's not the same size. It's good for public morale, maybe for uh, uh, Hezbollah supporters, etc. But I don't think that there's a quite a balance there. So we right. raise the point of what is Hezbollah actually? What situation? What setting would Hezbollah benefit from more in the future? And what would it do to to get to that point? So that's a whole big question. And I prefer to talk about it with someone who knows this shit. <laughs> I, I think we should definitely come back to this because, of course, all of this is going on against uh, the backdrop of uh, UNIFIL's mandate being renewed. Uh, that'll be at the end of this month. Uh, the Israelis are pushing, I guess, to give UNIFIL more powers so that they can fully enforce 1701. That, that, that's something that just politically isn't really feasible to do and would end up discrediting UNIFIL as an organization, in my opinion. But, you know, then then there's also just sort of the the larger question that a lot of people have been pointing to as well, which is that, you know, Trump isn't doing so good in the polls in the United States. And because Trump and Netanyahu are besties, Netanyahu may have a lot less freedom of action, uh, you know, if Joe Biden wins the White House. Obviously, it's way too far out from the elections to to make any solid predictions as far as that goes. But you can bet that the Israeli leaders are definitely looking at this election, and I am sure quite fearing what happens if the Democrats come back into power because they really, really sort of hitched their star to the Republican Party over the past several years. Sure, I don't think that Biden uh, would be... Uh, a huge difference from, say, Obama or George Bush years when it comes to the Arab-Israeli conflict, because, I mean, his positions and his all his stances don't seem very promising at all when it comes to the Palestinian issue or uh, the, the conflict. But in any case, uh, it's definitely a major factor that Netanyahu and Trump both have to take into account what, what can they do to basically use the time that they know Trump is there um, in the White House with all the power that he has, especially how completely unapologetically and uh, rudely and aggressively Trump has been supportive of uh, the right-wing government in Israel and expansion, expansion uh, annexation, aggressive aggressions, everything. Yeah, and well, hopefully cooler heads prevail, whether that is during the next round of confrontation uh, when Hezbollah uh, responds uh, or, or more generally and we don't have anything that happens because, you know, Benny Gantz, Netanyahu's rival, who uh, is defense minister right now, you know, he reportedly uh, just sort of reiterated the the Dahye doctrine in a, in a certain manner of speaking, uh, reiterated that Lebanese infrastructure should be targeted if there is a full-scale war. And clearly here in Lebanon, you know, that, that, that inspired some jokes here in Lebanon because, well, we, we just talked a whole a whole bunch about electricity and whatnot, uh, and water and all of these other things. But clearly, that that would not be a good thing for Lebanon if that happened. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the last thing we need, right? <laughs> yeah. On top of everything happening from the from the economic crisis and the social catastrophe that we're seeing, this would definitely like a war would definitely be one of the worst things that can happen to the country today. I mean, um, how many disasters can one country have? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, hopefully this doesn't happen. But unfortunately, you're not dealing with like reasonable people in this case you're talking about one of the most you know criminal governments in the history i've ever seen in my opinion uh, especially in more modern times when it comes to like how rude you can be and this discard dismissing all concerns related to human rights and human dignity and you know land and sovereignty and everything so with the Netanyahu in power and his former rival Gantz being his defense minister now and you know being in coalition uh, there's nothing good to expect, uh, expect at all from uh, the Israeli administration, obviously. Well, on that hopeful note, I, 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 think, uh, <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it right there. Thanks so much for joining us. We, of course, we'll, we'll be in tune with uh, all of the developments happening over the next week, and hopefully we will be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. And Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.